Welcome to another episode of the SaaS Podcast. I'm your host, Omar Khan, and this is the show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your SaaS business. Today's interview is with Grant Miller. Grant is the co-founder of Replicated, a service that solves the problem for companies who want to install and deploy a SaaS application inside their own firewall. Previously, he was the co-founder of Look.io, a mobile live chat platform that was acquired by LivePerson after just nine months. In this episode, we talk about how to go about finding a great technical co-founder, how the co-founders of Look.io came up with the idea for that business, how they raised money when they had no customers, how they sold Look.io for millions within just nine months, and the billion-dollar vision the team now has for their new business. So with that, let's bring on Grant. Grant, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, I gave the audience a brief overview of your product and business, but tell us a little bit more about yourself personally. Who's Grant when he's not working? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, I spent the first 25 years uh, of my life there, um, you know, high school, college. And then uh, at some point I was working for another startup and I just had the opportunity to to kind of live wherever I wanted. And I decided to, you know, move out to LA. My brother was living here at the time. Um, and so I've become a, uh, I've adopted California and Los Angeles as, as my new home. Um, I think I'm here to stay. I, I love LA because it's a place where you can just, you know, be very focused on work and there's a lot to do. But then the other the other two hours a day that you're not working, it's uh it's very easy to get outside and get some sunshine and and be active and you know go for a trail run or a hike or a surf. So um that's what you find me doing when I'm not working. Why why did you choose LA instead of, you know, going to the Bay Area or the Valley? What's the tech scene like down there? Yeah, um, you know, I think you can build a great business anywhere. Uh, I think being in a in a a big market helps. Um, you know, I think that uh, the tech scene's strong. Like m- my closest friends are all entrepreneurs, um, so I think that's a really important piece in terms of having a strong network of people that support you and know what you're going through. Uh, so, you know, I was able to find that here and, and make it a home. And I think. You know, I, I get up to the Bay Area a lot. It's an hour flight. You know, I can fly either into San Jose or find SF, find Oakland. And so we get to spend a lot of time there. I get to spend a lot of time in New York. Um, but I can have my home be someplace that I feel uh, very relaxed and very comfortable. Now, we like to kick things off with a success quote to better understand what drives and motivates our guests. Do you have a favorite quote? Yeah. So I, I sort of have two, and they're, they're a little bit different. Um, the first one sort of helped drive me when I was building Look.io. And that's a quote from uh, this, he's a Cincinnati-born entrepreneur um, named Carl Lindner. And, uh, and he loved these quotes. So he had these little cards made up that had all his quotes. Um, and it's, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I just think it really kind of uh, encapsulates the idea of, you know, you sort of make your own luck. Um, and then the other one is sort of a, a much more famous quote uh, by Steve Jobs. And, and I won't go into the whole thing, but it, it basically is, you know, it's from his uh, speech at Stanford, where he basically tells the audience that, you know, the world around you is created by people who are no smarter than you. And it sort of goes on to help people understand that 
you sort of need to make the world that you're in. And in that, and that quote is really what has driven me more recently because I think it sort of opens your eyes up to the idea that like, um, you, like the whole world that we know was created by people who have far less knowledge than us. And we have like the world's information at our fingertips. And so now you have like just vast more opportunities to change things and make things how they really should be. Um, and I think that that's a, it's a much broader and bigger vision than, uh, than I originally had when I was, when I was building like I am. That's a good one. I, I love listening to that speech and, you know, every, you know, once in a while I'll go back and listen to that and it just kind of like pumps you up again. Right? Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, let's talk about, um, we'll talk a little bit about Luke.io and, and the journey you took there. Um, and then we'll get into uh, your latest business, Replicated. But tell me a little bit about what you were doing before you started Lucayo. Sure. Um, so in college, I went to the University, uh, University of Cincinnati. Uh, and they have this great program where you sort of co-op. So you spend half your time in class and half your time working for a company. So I joined this uh, sort of startup called Spark People, which was, you know, had been founded by um, Chris Downey, who's a, an entrepreneur who had sold his first company to eBay and then started Spark People as a way to like help uh, other people achieve their goals. Um, and it was a really interesting place to kind of grow and learn because we were figuring out the business the whole time. And I was, uh, and I basically ran customer acquisition there for about you know, all throughout college, so four years in college and then three years after for about seven years total. And I just learned all about the internet. It's kind of like you know, I got to be an understudy from guys who had been there and done it in the early days and, and really built something amazing. Uh, and I got to test a lot of, you know, of my theories out. And it was a great place to learn. And then while I was still working with them, I actually moved uh, to California and, you know, worked remotely for a few years and then eventually met up with another entrepreneur from Ohio, uh, this guy, Will Schroeder. And he, you know, was building this sort of handful of web properties, you know, in all sorts of different areas and, you know, had sold a few companies uh, previously, you know, had, was really an amazingly hard worker. And he asked me to come on as a CMO. So I worked uh, with Will for about 18 months. Um, and then, and then I, you know, I, I was kind of spending a lot of nights and weekends hacking on side projects and spending time in a co-working space in Santa Monica where I met my co-founder, um, from both for both Look.io and, and Replicated, uh, Mark Campbell. And, you know, Mark and I were both working on separate side projects. And we just sort of recognized, you know, we were both the guys who were, who were at uh, this co-working space from, you know, 7 p.m. until midnight, five nights a week, and there on the weekends. And we're really focused. And we just had a lot of very complementary skills. Um, and, you know, just became kind of buddies. And then, uh, Mark had the idea for, for Look.io. Um, he and our, our other co-founder, Joe, basically built it in a weekend at a startup weekend. And, uh, and it got some attention. So, you know, I left my job with Will the next day, um, sort of started to like go raise some money for us so that, you know, Mark could have a salary and Joe could have a salary, you know, while we were building out the product. And just sort of continued to to network our way and to build our you know build our uh, our team of advisors and investors, um, you know, to the point where we could actually build a business. 
So I want to find out a little bit more about how you guys decided that you were going to become co-founders. You know, I hear, I, I talk to a lot of founders who, um, you know, either have a really hard time finding the right co-founder um, or the other situation is they kind of regret the person that they brought on as a co-founder. Um, so how long did you guys sort of know each other before you knew this was the, you know, that, that Mark was the right person for, for you to sort of launch a business with? Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's such a important piece, right? I, I don't think there's a more important thing than finding the right co-founder. Um, and I had, you know, like I said, I've been working on all these other side projects, you know, prior to Mark, and I tried to start probably 10 businesses, you know, uh, throughout college and after college and while working at Spark People, you know, I was always kind of doing things on the side. Um, I think the most important things that I did, so, you know, I'm a, I was always on the marketing and customer acquisition side. So, you know, the, the year or two prior to, to working with Mark, I actually taught myself how to code, right? So I, you know, I watched videos um, from Harvard, like CS50.tv and CS75.tv. There's classes that they put all the content online. And I taught me, you know, I like sort of watched those and learned more about programming, sort of soup to nuts and got the, uh, the full like history from binary to, you know, assembly and, and, and how that all worked. And, you know, up to being able to prototype stuff in PHP and MySQL and JavaScript and um, being sort of what I like to say, just like dangerous enough to prototype. <laughs> and uh, I, I think just that action of, of really investing, you know, a lot of time to, to become more competent um, earned me a lot of respect uh, in Mark's eyes. And, you know, he's like an amazingly talented engineer who can pick up a language in, you know, a week and be a master of it and, you know, has just, you know, he's a little bit older. He's, he's actually about uh, seven or eight years older than I am. And, you know, so he's built up this amazing uh, breadth of skills and knowledge from all of his experiences. And, you know, I, I think that the fact that I was this, this marketing, you know, customer acquisition, businessy guy who actually like could understand the logic behind the things that he was building and really appreciate like how amazing he was really um, a, a lot of us to hit it off. So, you know, oftentimes my biggest advice to, to sort of business co-founders is like, just go like teach yourself how to code. There's a, a million resources around, you know, it's freely available on the internet. And by doing so, you just, um, you, you can one spot really amazing uh, technical co-founders. And two, you just, like you, you'll understand them more, you know, you'll understand what you can and can't build. Um, so I think for me, it was, it was being able to, to, to know that and see Mark. And then the other piece was just, we had this very uh, aligned work, work ethic, right? I mentioned that we would both be at the co-working space from 7 PM to midnight, you know, four nights a week and there on the weekends. And I think when you recognize that, that the person you're going to go into business with is, as uh, committed as you are to really put everything they have into it, um, you're just much better aligned. T tell me more about um, where the idea for Look.io came, came from. 
Uh, by the way, how old are you now? I'm 32. You've done a lot in the last 10 years. Been busy. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, tell me more about that idea. Yeah. I mean, uh, so just with everything that we do, they're basically Mark's ideas. Um, he was, you know, a, a mobile engineer for a company called Tiger Text. And he was experiencing the, the pain of, you know, developing uh, mobile applications and then sending them off for testing, you know, beta testers and, and just not being able to get the feedback and not understanding the experiences that were that his users were having. So he was like, you know, I want to I want to build a library, right, a plugin for mobile apps to be able to uh, view the screen of the user while they're using the application. So that was sort of the first concept around it. Um, and so he and our other co-founder, Joe, sort of like built this prototype out. And it's funny, when they told me the idea, I was like, I sort of thought about it for a minute. I was like, okay. So it's kind of like live person for mobile. And he was like, sure. And he was like, but what's live person? And I was like, oh, it's kind of this live chat thing, right? Um, so they, so I, I kind of just like suggested that they add in, you know, a, a a text chat feature that would, you know, go alongside of this screen sharing. Um, and so they added that in and, you know, built this little prototype that the, I mean, the, the, the wow factor was the fact that like you could literally screen share and like, you know, the you on at a computer could click into the screen of a mobile user and like tap around and show them what to do. Um, and, and then the, the text chat that overlaid was sort of like this like afterthought that we added in is just like, oh, well, it might be nice to show them a, a message, right? Um, so that's yeah. interesting. So you, you, you already sort of, once you heard the idea, you already kind of made the connection with live person. Um, but that's, that you weren't kind of thinking about that company when, or Mark wasn't thinking about that company when that sort of idea evolved. Yeah, you know, he definitely wasn't thinking about the live chat aspect of it. I think he was more thinking about like, you know, the screen share and the ability to like experience what your users experiencing and, and really see what they're seeing. Um, which is why we called it look. Uh, and, but you know, at the same time, like that idea was still fairly like, it was fairly iterative, right? Like live chat had worked on the web, you know, and like screen sharing had worked on the web. So there just wasn't, it just didn't exist on mobile. And I think it was, uh, you know, I, I, I don't claim that it was like this amazing, you know, transformational technology that we built. It was sort of a fairly like next step. And, you know, people were trying to build it. We just built it in a very clean and simple way with a great experience, which is what made us different. Okay. And then did you say you, you decided to go and raise money once you guys had had sort of a, a sort of, I guess, an MVP built? Yeah, so we, yeah, exactly. We had just a, a demo um, and this was 2011. So, you know, and Mark and I were first time entrepreneurs. So we, we decided it would be really helpful if we had some amount of, of capital to, you know, pay. Well, I paid myself like $24,000 and we paid Mark like 60 grand and he has a family with like two kids. So like, you know, very below market salaries, but we needed some money to pay those nonetheless. Um and to travel, you know, up to SF and over to New York and all over the place and try to get customers. So we, yes, we raised, we basically, in the way we raised money was, um, we didn't really know any investors, right? Uh, but we did know a few other entrepreneurs. So we, we showed our product, um, to another entrepreneur who was in the mobile space that I had met 
through through Will, you know, the guy who I'd worked with previously. And we were like, hey, here's here's the technology we're building. Like, you know, what do you think? And this guy, Dustin, who was the founder of a company called Pose, he was like, oh, this is really cool. You know, let me introduce you to some of my investors, right? And through, you know, basically a series of meetings and then introductions and then the next guys, we, we, we found a group of, um, of amazing investors, right? Who all threw in anywhere from 25 to 50K. And, you know, we only needed a few of those guys. We raised $200,000. $200, and, you know, off we went, we went, right? Mark was able to leave his job. He was actually kind of in the process of leaving at that point. So he was, you know, winding down his full-time gig at Tiger Text. Nobody was, a, he was the principal engineer. So he, they needed like a solid, you know, six weeks of transition. Um, so it was during that time that I raised the money. Um, so I, 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 did you have any customers at that point? No, no. I mean, we, uh, <laughs> so it was just the idea and the demo product that you had. Yeah. And, and one of our investors, um, who, who was actually the first guy that committed, uh, this guy, Tom McInerney, he's a fairly like, uh, you know, prominent angel investor in LA. Um, he saw what we were doing and in the comment that he made, he was like, he saw that we had engineering velocity, right? So we were just building like amazing stuff constantly, right? And the product was, was changing dramatically from one week to the next because Mark and Joe were putting so much effort into building something great. I think that's what really spurred him to, to, to take a little bit of a risk on us. Okay. All right. So you've got the money. How long did it take you guys to to get to a point where you, I mean, did you go out and, and sort of launch right away or did you keep working on the product for a little longer before you kind of went out there? Um, no, we, we definitely, I mean, we were like, we had a website from day one. We were out there, you know, showing the technology to people and, and specifically, you know, showing it to targeted entrepreneurs who might be interested in using it in their products, right. And showing them, you know, where we were today and getting their feedback on the product and really sort of building it, uh, to meet their needs and to make sure that this was something that they would want to use in the future. So, um, you know, it's kind of the idea of finding like early design partners or design customers that can, can help give you feedback on your product. Were you charging for the product from, from day one? No, no. For, for Look.io, we actually never charged anyone. So until, until we were acquired and part of live person, we didn't have any revenue. Got it. Got it. Okay. Um, so how long did it take you to get the first, uh, I guess, user or customer uh, up and running? Uh, so, you know, we were, we were sort of experimenting with a few of our friends and putting it inside of their apps. Um, you know, that they were just like other guys out of the co-working space and, and it was helpful for them. But I think the real, the first customer that was really, really helpful. Um, and we'd basically been introduced through a VC is, is, uh, is hotel tonight. So, um, I had been introduced to their CEO, Sam Shank through, uh, uh, this, DC, who actually never even invested in, in Look.io, but this guy Sar from uh, Charles River Ventures, and he had introduced us to to um, Sam Shank, who we then spent time showing the product to, and he kind of gave us advice, and then eventually he decided that like, yes, this is something we want to move forward with, and I think they went live in like a February or March timeframe, and we had started the company um, in August, so it took that long to really get a customer live. 
Okay. And uh, were you doing anything else to go and acquire customers or was it just really going and just, as you said, sort of these focused um, sort of conversations with other entrepreneurs who were likely to use the product? Were you doing anything else? I mean, I think, uh, and this is a, this is definitely carried forward in the replicated as well, which is when you're, when you're building enterprise software, right. Um, which both of these companies are, you, you basically have to be constantly trying to get feedback from, uh, the best possible customers, right. You don't just want anybody using it and, and it's sort of like, cause you, you sort of get locked into their use case. You want to find, um, a customer who you think is a thought leader in the space that you're trying to go after. And then you basically want to partner with them to, to build the features that would make them more successful. And you basically just focus all of your effort on listening to their feedback, understanding their use cases. And you try to get, a, you know, maybe two or three uh, of these design partners so that you you have a, a couple different points of reference and you're not building just the thing for one customer, but you're building something that has, um, the feedback from a, from a few customers in a similar space so that you're really solving the problem that then can apply to a bigger, you know, a bigger audience. So I'm curious, why did you decide to target uh, enterprise customers? I mean, you could have easily just sort of gone for, uh, you know, the, the millions of uh, app developers out there who could use this kind of functionality. Yeah. So the, the idea is that, um, you needed to figure out who needs your product the most, right? And for Look.io, you know, we realized that like the thing that we helped out with was allowing you to engage with your customers. And the people that want to engage with their customers on mobile are probably doing mobile commerce, right? So I bought this magazine, you know, from internet retailer called the Mobile Commerce uh, 500. And it basically is a, a ranking of the top companies who are doing the most total revenue in, you know, over mobile. And that was like my Bible. I carried that thing around me all the time. It was actually, at that point, they didn't even have an internet version. They had like a paper copy. So I would like, it would be with me on planes and everywhere else I went. And I, and I knew who the biggest companies were in mobile. And I tried to reach them and try to show them what we were doing. Because my thought was that, uh, one, mobile commerce was going to grow, right? It was like, that was going to be the way that people purchased in the future. So if we could target companies who were thought leaders in mobile commerce, then we would, you know, sort of inherently get this halo effect of, of being the, the tech, the technology of preference for mobile thought, mobile commerce thought leaders, which would then allow us to, you know, get a broader appeal and get more companies using it. Okay. Um, how did the uh, acquisition with LivePerson come about? Uh, did you did you go out and and at some point would, did that become part of your your exit strategy or was it kind of more something that happened by accident? Yeah. Um, so about six months in, you know, we started to get a little press from the launch with Hotel Tonight. And, you know, we were part of this accelerator in L.A. called Amplify. So we got a little press because of them as well. And uh, we basically, you know, we were out sort of at this point, we, you know, we knew our fundraising of 200K was only going to last so long. So we were what I call soft circling the next round. We were talking to investors who might be interested in investing 
you know, I think we we're going to raise a million and a half in the next round. So we were kind of getting guys, lining people up to, to come into that next round. And during that time, um, we actually just got a phone call uh, to my cell phone, which was the phone number that was listed on the website at the time um, from the head of mobile at live person. And, you know, he's like, Hey, you know, just want to talk about what you guys are doing, you know, and, uh, if there's an opportunity to partner. And, and so we able to, we were able to really kind of establish a bit of a connection, but it was really, you know, we didn't go to like try to shop the company around or shop the offer around. We made a connection with the CEO at live person, this guy, Rob Lucasio, who was the original founder and, and we loved their CFO. We just loved the team there and thought that they had, a, they shared the vision, um, for, for, you know, live chat to drive mobile commerce and, and they would be a great home for us. So, uh, ultimately, you know, it took about three months of negotiation, um, all the time, all the while we were sort of on this dual path of, of soft circling our next round. Um, but eventually, you know, the offer came through and we signed the deal and, you know, they wired the money and all, and we were live person mobile. How much did you sell the business for? I know you're not going to tell me, but I'm, I'm sure people are going to be curious about yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. So, so was, I have to ask. <laughs> uh, it was never disclosed publicly, so we haven't been able to share it, but, um, you know, it was, it was in the millions of dollars. So that was, uh, it was, it was a good, it was a great outcome for Mark and I and our, and our team as well as, uh, for our investors. So. So looking back at that experience and it's, it's an incredible journey to go on for, for just nine months. Um, what do you think was one of the biggest mistakes that you made? Um, well, I mean, so during those nine months, uh, you know, I always like to say like now sort of looking at how I'm running my business versus then how I ran our business. And at that point, with, you know, it was look IO. It was like, if I was in the, it was in the ocean, I was just not drowning. Right. Like we weren't going anywhere, but we weren't drowning. Um, and it took all the effort to just not drown. And, and now I think with replicated, you know, having been there before and having had a lot more experience, you know, at live person, uh, I think we're really swimming, you know, so we're, we're, we're making an effort to go in a specific direction and we have a vision where we want to be. So, you know, it's, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know if that's really a big mistake because we just didn't know any better, but it was, uh, it was definitely the struggle. Can you give me an example of maybe a, a, a specific situation, which you're handling very differently now with replicated than you were when you were working on Look.io? Sure. Like there's a really funny example, which was, uh, we were in New York and we were soft circling this round and, you know, we didn't know how to value our business. And so we were talking to an investor and we were like, yeah, I think we're going to raise, you know, one on, on four, right? So a million dollars on a four million valuation. And he's like, is it, that's great. He's like, I'm in, I'll take it all. And I was like, <laughs> and I, and I was like t- taken aback. I was like, Oh, uh, well, you know, like, uh, maybe it's a little bit higher now. It's, it's, it's really kind of a, it's kind of a moving target. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, I think that that was a, that was, sort of realizing that maybe we had set our price a bit too low and I needed to, to, to raise it up, but I tried to do it to the same guy who had just agreed to take the deal. It was, it was just <laughs> one of these like very amateur mistakes. Um, and, and did you, have you, have you raised uh, money for replicated as well? 
Yeah, yeah. So we just raised one and a half million, um, you know, from from a lot of the same guys who had invested in, you know, in Lookio's uh, advisory round, as well as guys that were were really, you know, hoping to get into the next round, but never did because we were sold. So, so I guess it was a lot easier this time because. Uh, one, you have, you know, you're, you're a lot more experienced with, with that process and raising money. And then also you have a great track record now, which probably makes it a lot easier as well, I guess. Yeah, it definitely helps a lot. Um, still amazing though, like, you know, despite our success, uh, raising money from people that I didn't know was just about as hard as, you know, as it was the first time, you know, pretty much all of our investors I, I've known for, at least a year, maybe longer, right? Maybe three or four or one in one case, I've been the guy for eight years. Um, so, you know, it's in a lot of the, a lot of the new, a lot of the folks that we just met or got introduced to uh, during the fundraise, um, just didn't trust us enough. Looking back, what, what do you think was one of the hardest things about building the Lucayo business? I, I mean, in, in many ways, it sounds like um, super easy, right? I'm sure it wasn't, but it, it kind of you know comes like that. You came up with this idea, you built this product, you got a couple of hundred thousand dollars, and the company was sold for you know millions of dollars within nine months. What what do you wish if you could go back to the day you started on that journey with that business, and you could tell yourself or give yourself some advice? What do you wish you had known? better about building that business? Um, that's a great question. I, I think uh, for us, it was really, it, it was just a great growth experience, right? Um, when we started that business, we we weren't really thinking about building a multi-billion dollar business, right? We were thinking, we'd seen multi-million dollar companies built, right? We were a part of them. We had like contributed you know, Mark and I each had contributed millions of dollars in value to the companies we'd worked at. So I think we initially set off with the vision of like, let's build a multi-million dollar business, right? And and that's just different than what you need to do in order to really create billions of dollars in value, right? Um, but, but at the same time, it's like, I, I don't think that I should have gone and tried to build billions of dollars in value that first time because you know, I really need the experience of, of building millions in value personally before I could try to tackle billions. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's all about stage stages and understanding like what the next step is. And, uh, and for us, it was like a really amazing learning experience. And, um, you know, I, I, I probably wouldn't have done it any, any differently. Okay, so let's talk about uh, replicated, uh, very different business, not in the mobile space. Um, where did the idea for that come from? Yeah, so so once again, you know, Mark um, Mark was leading a lot of the technology innovation at Live Person, and we just seen that, like, you know, not not just at Live Person, but many other SaaS companies we talked to. Uh, we're still getting these requests from big customers to, you know, to like sell them an, an installable version, right? Something that the, that a big fortune, you know, 50 company could host behind their firewall or put, you know, in their own data center and have control over. 
um, instead of you know using the cloud version. And you know the opportunities for this uh, to, to sell that as a cloud company are actually quite difficult, right? Um, you can either sort of physically provision appliances and send them into you know to a customer through snail mail or UPS to rack and stack, as they say, into their data center. Um, and that's a nightmare. Or the, the sort of, you know, more cutting edge solution at the time was to, to sort of create a secondary product uh, that you could wrap in a VM, right, in a virtual machine, and then send that VM to be like run inside of, you know, a data center, a private, uh, private cloud. Um, and Mark's recognition was just that, you know, okay, Neither of those are really perfect, uh, but what's interesting is he, he saw that containers, right? So a lot of people probably heard about Docker, mm-hmm. um, and containers uh, allow you to go from a developer's machine to a staging environment to a production environment, and and keep all of the application dependencies with with the application, right? So it's kind of referred to as developer defined architecture or, um, you know, where you're not really like using a, an, you know, a script to provision a, an, you know, a VM or a, or a box before you apply your, or before you, you know, you deploy your application. It sort of all happens inside of the, the container. So that same application portability that allows you to go vertically in the stack from a, developer's machine to a staging environment to production environment, Mark just recognized that like, hey, you can leverage that same app portability to put it into somebody else's data center or put it into somebody else's uh, private cloud. So, you know, Mark had that recognition um, around the time that our, our EarnUp was out at live person. And we, we knew that more, more SaaS companies would sort of adopt that as a way to ship their, uh, their cloud product into the data center. So, we, we sort of just set off to say, okay, well, if SaaS companies start to make that decision, what are going to be the things that they're all going to have to build, right? What are they going to have to do to, to make that possible? And we looked at uh, sort of the, the company that was, had best gone from cloud to installable and had two different products to do that, um, which is GitHub. Right. So GitHub, uh, you know, has started as github.com with a, you know, cloud based um, uh, source control. And then about two years in, into that existing, they introduced GitHub Enterprise, which has been become wildly successful. You know, thousands of customers, you know, all the biggest companies in the world using GitHub Enterprise, which is a virtual machine that you deploy behind your firewall and you manage and you update your IT team manages and updates. So we just studied GitHub Enterprise and really figured out like what made it work well um, and what was what was better about that experience than you know most other installable software. And then we said, okay, well, how can we make it better even? So we, we sort of decided to to take what they've had, what they had, and, and sort of uh, be inspired by a lot of their features, but also add things in that we thought would make it even easier for you know, an IT administrator to install and update and manage. Um, and then we just put those services together and, and offer them as, you know, as replicated so that now you as a, 
uh, a SaaS application developer can deploy the same product to the cloud that you then can deploy through replicated. And then we wrap these enterprise sort of enabling features around and then give to your biggest customers for them to, to put in their data center. How, how big of a, a market or opportunity do you think um, this is? Because in, you know, I mean, I, I obviously I spent a long time in an enterprise environment. And so I get it in terms of a lot of those companies are just not comfortable with their applications and data being hosted outside of their own data centers. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, I would say that you could have made the same argument with things like CRM software 10 years ago, where those companies would have said, hey, you know, we don't want to host this outside of our data center. This is, you know, uh, proprietary information about our customers, our clients. And uh, that pretty much changed with companies like Salesforce. And most enterprises seem to be a lot more comfortable um, hosting these apps elsewhere. Um, so do you, what, what's your take on this? Do, do you think that, um, I mean, obviously you guys are making a bet that it's going to be a, a, a big opportunity, but I'm just wondering about how, how are you seeing the future? Yeah. So yeah, that's a great, that's great. And, and Mark and I really believe in a future with a much more decentralized and distributed internet. Right. So we think that um, there shouldn't be this like centralized uh, place where all the world's information is, is controlled by one by one you know, company or a handful of companies. So the fact that all of our email sits in Gmail and, you know, and sort of they can provide backdoors to whoever they want to get into your information or the employees can access it um, just doesn't feel right. It just doesn't feel like the spirit of the Internet that we want to have and that I think was originally set out to, to be created. The internet was, was originally designed to be decentralized and distributed. So we just think that that decentralization can start in the enterprise, right? Where applications can be run anywhere and people can control their, uh, their data and the updates and, and the access as they wish and, and make, you know, um, governments come to the front door and ask for information instead of, you know, going behind your back. And, uh, it's not just governments, but it's, you know, it's everybody. So that that's like the very broad vision. Um, and in terms of market size, you know, what we see is that all the best software is being developed in the cloud, right? This is where uh, all the innovation happens. The consumerization of IT, you know, is something that's talked about a lot. Yet there's still this huge amount of spend, right? $370 billion a year. Is is spent um, to to bring you know to deploy software in the installable version in the enterprise three hundred seventy billion. Compare that to the thirty billion a year spent on on cloud, and you, you have a a uh, an order of magnitude more money spent for installable software. And the problem is that that's just not moving to cloud fast enough. So what we think we can do is enable cloud companies to capture that market much faster than they are doing today by sort of meeting that demand somewhere in the middle, right? Where it's their cloud technology, it's sort of deployed through a little bit more modern technologies, but it's 
it's it's controlled by the buyer. So we really think we're defining a uh, like a new paradigm that's that's not full on prem. It's not full cloud. It's sort of this. We don't really like the term hybrid, but it's this. Um, it's this combination. Uh, what stages there are you at with Replicated? Did, you, did when did you guys launch that business? Um, so we launched. We started it in September, and you know, and really just have been heads down building product for the last uh, eight months. Um, all during that time, we spent a lot of we spent a lot of time in front of customers, showing them what we have, getting feedback, understanding their needs, right? And we think about the software vendors as our as our customers here, and. So now we have uh, three like early customers who are all incredibly excited about what we're doing and, and how we're helping them um, reach more you know, enterprises. And you know we haven't announced who those customers are yet, but um, you know we'll we'll probably be you know, announcing who they are pretty soon, and and uh, and really focusing on on bringing more customers on board. So. So it sounds like you probably have like two types of um, potential customers. One is somebody who already has a um, SaaS product um, and is seeing growing demand for, um, you know, enterprise customers to host within their own data centers. Um, and I guess the the other one I'd kind of think of as well is that there are, you know, there are a bunch of, uh, companies out there who, uh, you know, maybe have a client version of software right now would love to get into a SaaS model, but haven't been able to do that because um, their customers expect this software to be installed within the data centers. And so that might open up a new uh, path for those type of uh, uh, players as well, I guess. Uh Potentially, we we really we really see it as like we're serving SaaS companies and pretty much SaaS companies alone. Um, sometimes they have like already you know created a beta version that's installable, uh, but generally it's like you know helping them go from zero to one and bringing their SaaS product on prem. Um, and you know, I, I guess eventually the other customer we really you know we we kind of help to help serve two customers, right? One is the SaaS vendor, and the other is the IT buyer who wants to have access to amazing software um, behind the firewall. And they don't want to be stuck with the thing that was developed 15 years ago. They want to use the latest and greatest stuff that's only available in the cloud. So we just help bring that, that cloud tech to them much faster. Got it. Uh, do you think about um, an exit and an acquisition with this business? Are you guys already thinking about that or hoping that it happens or, or do you have a sort of a different, uh, mindset to the way you've approached this new business. Yeah, we have we have a much different mindset, right? I think um, we recognized while working at Live Person and, and working with some of Live Person's biggest customers that these multi-billion-dollar organizations are, are really run by people who um, are not are not any smarter than we are, right? And a lot of times they make decisions to to keep their jobs, not to to create um, amazing amounts of value. So we think that we're we're very uh, capable of running, you know, a multi-billion-dollar business, and that's what we want to see this become. Um, plus, like, we just love building stuff, right? So, 
we want to build this and to make this the place that we want to spend all of our time. So, you know, we don't want to go work for somebody else. Cool. Uh, it's a very inspirational story and uh, I am really looking forward to seeing uh, what you guys are going to do with this business. All right. Uh, it's now time for our lightning round. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I'd like you to answer them as quickly as you can. Are you ready? All right. Let's do it. What's the best piece of business advice that you ever received? Uh, think less, do more. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Oh, uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful entrepreneur? Uh, the, I, I call it the ability to grind, which means to go, you know, just constantly doing work that nobody else wants to do and just produced, producing value for 15, 16 hours straight. What's your favorite personal productivity tool or habit? Uh, so very relevant. The thing that I love to do is actually um, listen to podcasts while I go for like a nice, you know, six or eight mile run and just sort of, you know, not at full speed, just sort of at, you know, maybe a, a eight mile an hour pace thinking about, you know, the things that I'm hearing and deconstructing uh, the, the, you know, the entrepreneur that's being interviewed or the business that, you know, that, that's being talked about. Very cool. And, and I think you, when we talked earlier, you'd said that that was something you used to do even before you started Look.io, right? In terms of trying to listen to other stories, deconstruct them and sort of figure out a plan for yourself. Yeah, it's, it's been a really important thing for me. Like I, I like to reverse engineer things. So when I can hear stories about other people's success, it allows me to like sort of take little tidbits from here and there and then construct my own uh, sort of vision for success and like and, and formula for success. So if you had to start over tomorrow, what type of business or problem would you go out and solve? Maybe in another words, I would say, what were some of the other ideas that got you excited when you and Mark were talking about replicated? Okay. Yeah. Cause I was gonna say, well, of course I'm going to build replicated. <laughs> uh, there's, there's stuff that's related um, to the distributed internet, right? Like Mark and I really believe in sort of this concept of like peer to peer technology and, and enabling an internet that doesn't go through, uh, you know, the, the carriers, but actually is carried, you know, from device to device and sort of the, I think, I think we'll start to see that evolve over the next five or 10 years. What's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? Oh, um, let's see here. I, uh, I'll go, I, I've, <laughs> this is, this is always a hard one. Um, let's say that I, I have like, there's this rumor, there's this like little myth that it's impossible to eat six crackers in under a minute. And and I figured out in college that that is a complete myth. All you have to do is is bite crackers into like little shards and then swallow the shards, and you can eat like ten crackers <laughs> in a minute. So I've I've won many many like of those you know dry mouth competitions with that uh, that technique. There you go. Maybe there's a business opportunity there as well in the future. I don't know. I don't know. This sideshow pays very well. <laughs> and finally, what is one of your most important passions outside of your work? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I just love being active. So I, I think um, I like to, I call it commune with nature, right? So get up in the Santa Monica mountains and go for a mountain bike ride or a trail run or get in the ocean and, and swim or paddleboard and just sort of uh, 
really be surrounded by um, a natural environment. So, you know, that's my, that's, that's what makes me happy outside of work. Great answers. Grant, uh, I want to thank you for joining me today and sharing your experiences and insights with our audience. And thank you for letting us get to know you a little better personally as well. Um, if folks want to find out more about Replicated, they can go to replicated.com. And if they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, you know, Twitter's great, just at Grant M um, or LinkedIn. You know, uh, that's, that's always, always the easiest way to find me. Awesome. Grant, thanks again. I wish you continued success. Omar, thank you so much. Cheers.